Welcome to the Inspired Living with Autoimmunity podcast, the podcast for high achievers who want to stay sharp, focused, and full of energy despite their diagnosis. With your host, National Board Certified Functional Medicine Health Coach, Julie Michelson, where Julie helps you take your power back from autoimmunity. And now here's your host, Julie Michelson. Welcome back to the Inspired Living with Autoimmunity podcast. I'm your host, Julie Michelson, and today we are joined by Dr. Robert Whitfield, who is an innovative holistic plastic surgeon. That's right, a holistic plastic surgeon, until we coin another term for the work he's doing. We're talking today about breast implant illness and the role it can play in chronic illness and autoimmunity. And Dr. Rob shares with us his knowledge about the proper approach to explantation that addresses these underlying complications and how he's using his holistic approach to get remarkable results for his patients. Dr. Rob, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I am so excited you're here. We're going to talk about something that is so important, especially in the autoimmune world or chronic illness world. Um, that nobody is talking about. So one thing I ask everybody in the beginning is, you know, how did you get to be doing what you're doing? I think your story is going to be different. A lot of us, it's because of our own health journey, but you know, how do you go from, and you are still a phenomenal plastic surgeon. How do you all of a sudden become this expert in breast implant illness? I think it started early on, you know, we're shaped by our experiences. And I was in medical school, I think for about two weeks, my sister called me and she had been diagnosed with breast cancer. And I was her little brother. I was in medical school. So by default, just by the fact I was there in medical school, I should know what's going on and how to take care of her. And I was like, oh my God. So fortunately, our professor who was teaching us that day in, I think he was a biochemistry lecture. Anyway, he was an oncologist. They had clinicians come and Fortunately, after class, I, you know, I was like, hey, can you help me out here? And he was wonderful and, and actually connected a colleague with my sister who ended up taking care of her. And ultimately, she underwent chemotherapy. She had mastectomy. She had reconstruction with implants. And my friend and mentor took care of her. And, you know, about my third or fourth year of medical school, I was deciding what I was going to do. I was very interested in cardiac surgery. I didn't want to be a plastic surgeon. So I worked with, at that point, one of the best plastic surgeons in the United States, Dr. William Samboni, and uh, he couldn't convince me either. I was going to be a heart surgeon. Many surgeons are stubborn. So I went to train, and about my third, fourth year of training out of nine, I decided, uh, can't do heart surgery, and ultimately went back and finished uh my surgical training, then two years of plastic surgery training. And then I spent a year just with Dr. Zamboni doing cosmetics and oncology training and microsurgery, basically. So my background is complex uh, reconstruction and aesthetic surgery. And so for the longest period of time, I performed a very specific uh, form of breast reconstruction called the deep flap. Uh, It's taking the abdominal tissue that's discarded from a tummy tuck, leaving it connected to its blood vessels, and then connected to the blood supply that the heart surgeons use to revascularize the heart up in the chest after mastectomies. So I've had a long-standing history with breast cancer patients, implant problems, placement of implants, removals, revisions, you know. And because of that reputation I had nationally, people would, you know, look me up 
and get consultations regarding their breast reconstructions, either for revisions or improvements or complete replacements with a deep flap. And a patient from Georgia had relocated to Austin to, to retire, had looked me up on the internet and requested a consultation regarding her implant-based reconstruction. And I saw her and I, I never know, obviously, what the patient's ultimately going to want. And she didn't want to revision she didn't want a deep flap reconstruction or a autologous reconstruction is what we referred to it. She just wanted to get rid of the old reconstruction. And from time to time, I had faced that in my career. And it's not for me to decide whether or not somebody should keep their breast reconstruction. If, if that's no longer the desire, then, you know, my goal was always to help facilitate the request in the safest possible manner. And she had one overwhelming symptom. And I'll get that after like nothing on physical exam. Right. I mean, zero problems, soft breast reconstruction after a long period of time, which is uncommon, no laboratory abnormalities at all whatsoever. She had a cardiac condition that required her to be taken care of at a hospital, monitored overnight because that was a request of her physician. And so her number one thing was she was fatigued. Hmm. And she had a fistful of, of, at this point, what I would refer to as heavy metal testing. And, you know, I'm, I'm an allopathic physician trained in oncology and cosmetics. I, I don't know anything about heavy metal testing. And I was just like, I don't know what to do with this right now, but I'll, I'll look at it. And I looked at it. And, and, of course, she had high levels of kind of everything. So I didn't know what to make of that. Collective. And so, yeah, I was like, I don't know. You know, this is circa. What does this have to do with your breasts? <laughs> 2016, and I was like, I don't know what, what you want me to do with this. So I got her set up and and took care of her at a hospital. And per protocol that I've done for you know the entire time I did oncologic reconstruction was when I was taking a reconstruction down or an implant out is, of course, we would send specimens. Now she did request that I do an in block capsulectomy. If the audience should be familiar with that, it's like taking everything out like an unbroken Easter egg. So the scar surrounding the implant is taken out. It's not disturbed. It's like an oncology resection for a tumor. And so she requested this, which was an odd request, but because I did mostly oncology reconstruction, it wasn't unusual for me to, to understand or to perform. So I, I did it in the, the manner in which she requested. And, um, at the end, I always take samples and send those off for both microbial and microbial analysis and make sure there's no bacteria or fungus or mycobacterium. And then we send everything off to make sure there's no recurrent cancer. Obviously, we want to make sure the patient doesn't have recurrence that's undiagnosed as yet. And at that point, I put a, a drain tube in, which is pretty standard for her and, and that, that issue. And she stayed overnight, went home the next day. I was fine. Sorry to week. About three, four days before her follow-up appointment, we got her labs back from the hospital. Clea-based lab, for everybody in the audience who doesn't understand, Clea-based labs need 100,000 colony counts of bacteria to give a positive, and hers was positive for E. coli. So for a hospital lab to pick that up on, on a swab, mind you, I just did swabs back then. They're not quantitative, not DNA analysis. That was a big deal. And so this lady, uh, unfortunately, had been wandering around, poor thing, with uh, E. coli infection for I don't know how long. Now, people have asked me how she get E. coli. I mean, okay. So if you have an implant, hip, knee, breast, dental, I don't care what it is. If you get an exposure, if you step on a splinter and it has staph or whatever, 
or you're walking barefoot around and get something stuck in your foot, or if you dig into something, you get a cut, or if you get a colonoscopy, or if you get a tooth cleaning and bacteria gets in your bloodstream, it, it can easily go to any implanted device. That's a foreign body. Your body can't surveil that. So I wasn't so concerned about how she got it. I was just more apprehensive about why I missed it completely. I felt like as a clinician, I think I know what's going on. The only sign symptom, I reviewed all this stuff. I made sure I went back and looked at everything. And her only symptom was fatigue. It wasn't not brain fog. It wasn't any, you, not, anything else. Yeah, that's wild. So anyway, I treated her with an oral antibiotic because I didn't know what else to do. And I had sensitivities based on the laboratory results. So I treated her. And she got better, fatigue went away. Basically, at a month, she was, I, I guess, as normal as she had been in years, happy, you know. And I presume it was her that put me on some forum or mentioned me somewhere. And then people started trickling in, wanted, you know, wanting explants. And to make the, the long story short, is Clear Base Lab is completely inferior when you're trying to identify this problem. So, I switched to PCR testing in 2019, and I have over 400 consecutive samples of capsules from patients with, you know, the complaint. And they're predominantly going to have a, in the 60 percentage range, a bacterial contaminant. It's not fungus. It's not mold. It's not the nonsense written on the internet. In reality, the most predominant species is Cutibacterium acnes. But it just in general, it's a skin flora. I mean, I, I don't need to make it any more complicated, but I've found some really exotic, weird things as well in triathletes, Spartan racers, because if you get your hand punctured or if you get your foot punctured, I'm going to have you. You froze for a minute. Let's circle back. You were talking about some of those triathletes having a, a kind of more bizarre infection. Right. So um, I've been doing these PCR tests for quite a while, and that common bacteria is Cutibacterium acnes. But you can get more strange or spurious results in, in patients who have you know different environmental exposures, like a triathlete who swims a lot in the lake and then gets out and runs barefoot on the ground or somebody who does Spartan racing and digs around in dirt and mud with their hands. So if you think about it, there's more than plausible explanations environmentally to get these exposures, much like you do when you see somebody with a toxic mold exposure in their home. So I thought, oh, you know, I'm onto something here. This makes a lot more sense. So in terms of problem solving, you know, just like a complex reconstructive problem for oncology, I thought this testing problem, we, you know, really solved the majority of this. So I was like, ah, eh, I'm just going to do these PCR tests. I'm going to check this box and everything's going to be fine. But in about, you know, 30% of the patients, you don't ever find anything and they still get better. So in those patients, I calmly would say, look, I don't understand what the genetic predisposition is that you have. I presume you have a single nucleotide polymorphism or what we call to a SNP somewhere in your system, whether it's COMT, FUT, SOD2. I don't know where it is, but I presume you have it and you're going to get better. I don't know when it may take three months. It may take nine months. It may take a year and a half. I don't know. 
And so I think now that we're further along the road with both DNA testing and using AI to evaluate it, that we can confidently say that defects in superoxide dismutase, defects in glutathione metabolism and defects in your methylation pathways represent, you know, probably another 20% of that equation. So now I feel like we're, we're definitely closing the gap on what was a, a huge you know, open loop to me for a long time. And, you know, I still brain fog baffles me. So I added an EEG platform to my you know care plan. So anybody who complains of brain fog, we do an EEG pre-op and then repeat it three months out. And, you know, hopefully we'll work backwards and supplement them and, and get their brain function, you know, improved so that they can interact, you know, with their family and friends and loved ones. I love that. So I want to circle back to... <laughs> why I have you on the show, right? This is an autoimmune focused show. So some people may not directly be connecting the dots that you and I have already well connected. I want you to repeat this statistic again about, you know, with the explants you're doing, 60% have a bacterial infection. Like that's a that's a tremendous number. And I want people to understand this connection of, you know, we always talk about root causes and things that are driving inflammation. And um, right. so. This- so that was a thing when, when I started finding those, I felt very validated in what I was doing because I was taking a lot of heat for doing this. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, you know, just because you can't see it, smell it, taste it, it doesn't mean it's not a problem. And DNA testing, you know, was pivotal in this, just like it is for COVID now. Either you have COVID or you don't have COVID on PCR testing. So when I can scientifically explain a driver of an immune response and the patient can then say, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. And, and, you know, the the oxidative stress created by having the device in coupled to an infection tips people over. So maybe they were handling their oxidative stress and their life stress to a certain degree. But then what event, what environmental exposure happened to make that tip where they can no longer manage their oxidative stress? And if that's partly due to their genetic predisposition, then the autoimmune response is rubbed up even more and more and more. And they they never really recover. It's just a hamster in a wheel. Sure, sure. I want to talk a little bit about, you you mentioned fatigue, you mentioned brain fog as as symptoms people usually show up experiencing. What else, you know, what else are you seeing that over time gets better after explant? Lots of problems with anxiety and depression, lots of problems. I mean, 96% of my clients are female, digestive issues, huge problems, hair loss, but the, the fatigue, the muscle joint pain, all those things are, and as you know, there's a lot of things that could be responsible for these, you know, issues. They they overlap with sure. quite a few other issues. You and, mentioned the scale tipping point, right? It, it's we can only handle so much, and everybody's right. level is different as as far as you know how many how many different insults can the body handle? Correct. Yeah, that it's it's. Amazing. So for the, I'm guessing by the time people find you, women find you, they've already said, oh, I think I may have this thing, breast implant illness, right? Like it isn't unusual, still not, not defined pathway, right? Cause this, the, right. the general allopathic medical 
community barely recognizes this, if at all recognizes it. And I testified about it at the FDA hearings in 2019, but that hasn't filtered down. The plastic surgery societies have recognized it's an issue, but on a whole, I don't think there's enough, as you would imagine, data. And then in terms of like grassroots, you know, boots on the ground providers, barely any of them would even consider this to, to be a problem. It's usually upon the client to figure out that this could be an issue or they've seen a functional medicine provider who is familiar potentially or naturopath who's familiar but it's still i've i've got people after they've had every test every workup known to man done and they show up in fact I had a patient yesterday he had had an explant five years ago or a little bit longer done through the incision underneath the areola if you follow so a periareolar incision so just for your audience to know it is absolutely impossible to do an in-block capsulectomy through a periareolar incision. And the moment I see that and hear the story and they're still symptomatic, it's basically got to be taken to the operating room and opened and done in an in in-block or total capsulectomy manner that way, depending on how much shrinkage of the capsule has, has happened over time. I've had people that have had no shrinkage and I can put a temporary implant in uh, acts as a, you know, the, the egg, if you will. So I can work around it in a 360 manner or yesterday I could not because it had shrunk down so much. It wouldn't even accommodate the smallest expander we had. So I just had to take it out as a total capsulectomy. But, you know, once you take all that out and then we have ways to sterilize the pocket with a couple of different solutions and some pH related solutions and then drain them. I, I'm confident she's going to get better from a, you know, a, a microbial standpoint. That That's all. That's gone. That's done. That After yesterday, she, she will be fine now. Now she'll heal. Everything else is the purview of basically you because I have a lot of trouble closing that loop with these, these folks or they go back to where they came from because prior to COVID, about 60% of my clientele flew in. And after, you know, COVID, or we're still in COVID, I guess, it's more of a regional, but I am getting some more people to come and travel. Sure. A couple things I want to I want to touch on. I want to really dumb it down for us as far as, because I want to drive this home for people so they understand the different approach. You are not simply removing an implant, which is what the patient who saw you yesterday had done, why she's still sick. Right. right. So you are making sure that you're getting that a whole encapsulation. It's not just pulling the device out. Right. I always tell everybody, think of the little Easter egg at, you know, Easter with the candy inside. So the implant is the candy inside and the shell is the actual capsule. And so if you take that capsule out with the candy inside undisturbed, that's an in-block capsulectomy. Everything else is considered a capsulectomy. And if you simply open the Easter egg and take the candy out, that's just wasting the patient's time and money because it's not going to do anything if they're suffering from those symptoms. Based on my series with PCR analysis, I know that over half of those are going to be infected. So you're just leaving infected material. Thank you. I just wanted to circle back to that. I, I know enough about your practice to know that you take an approach that makes me 
happy dance with your patients, which I think is kind of what you were alluding to as far as people get on a plane, they go home, they return to. So you you take a very holistic, as it says right next to you, holistic and scientific plastic surgery approach. So this is not just, I show up, you know, Dr. Rob fix me and I go home back to my life. You are you put patients on specific diets, you're, you're treating the whole person for healing. Tell us a little bit about somebody comes to you and, you know, they, they, they want the surgery. What are, what kind of lifestyle changes are you having them make even pre-op? Yeah. Along the lines of what you do and what you're following would probably appreciate is I had a lady a little East of Austin show up whose eyes were almost like swollen shut and you could just see how edematous she was. She was just inflamed. And I would speak to her, and she's not very communicative. Her husband was with her, and you could tell that she could hear what I was saying, and she just couldn't process it very well. So I said, where do y'all live? And she says, oh, we live in the country, okay, and so I'm already thinking she has a mold exposure in whatever old ranch style home she lives in in the country. And I said, have y'all been doing anything? She was like, oh yeah, we laid a bunch of sod recently. It took us like two months to do it. We had so much to lay. So you know what sod does after it rains and lays around outside. So she just looked like somebody who had a toxic mold exposure. In addition, she had implants that were greater than 10 years old. She had fatigue, she had weight gain, she had joint pain, she had hair loss, she had dry eyes, she had dry mouth, she had Mm -hmm. acid reflux, she had digestive problems, everything she ate made her blow up. And so, you know, this is like, unfortunately, the, the appearance of mold superimposed on BII, she didn't have or couldn't relate a history of, you know, Frank Lyme disease, but she lives out in the country. It easily could be, you know, part of the equation. And I told her husband and her, I'm like, and they went to all sorts of doctors and everything and had MRIs and CAT scans. And I said, you know, this is what I want you to do. I want you to start a gluten-free dairy-free diet. We we explained that to them. And I tell them, I want them to try to shoot for hundred grams of protein a day, which is, which is hard to do. And, you know, we got her on the schedule, you know, relatively soon. And we were able to, to do her case, not because it was exactly what I wanted to do at that time for her, but it was the fastest way to get her better at that time. Because if you take that stimulus away from the immune system and then take some of the drivers away from inflammation from her gut, she'll do better quicker. So I did her case and a week later, she had already lost 10 pounds. Wow. Yeah. Because she's just carrying around a bunch of fluid. Cognitively, she was already better. So I, I think, you know, having dealt with this enough and, and we had a nutritionist for that was full-time prior to COVID. And then because of COVID couldn't, you know, be with us. We always did the same thing, not, not a Frank AIP diet, but I would just put people on a gluten-free dairy-free diet and just try to decrease the, the stimulus of inflammation in the GI tract. Most of them are really poor absorbers. Many of these folks, you'll find up a history of Accutane use, prolonged antibiotic use, lots of reasons to have leaky gut. So it ends up being the most holistic way to get started with the process. 
behavior is a very, very hard thing to change. And listening to your plastic surgeon probably recite things about diet is weird. So I think I'll let your audience know. So I trained at Indiana University and Indiana University Medical Center is the hub of burn care for the state of Indiana and the burn units are ran by the plastic surgeons. So all of the quote unquote calories and feedings are all ran by plastic surgeons. And I trained there in surgery as well. And the people I trained for, I trained with were some of the people involved with the development of IV nutrition. So it was all, you know, part of my training to know exactly what to give people, how much protein to give somebody. And there's nobody more calorie demanding than a burn patient. So I treat, you know, each patient individually with some basic tenets. We need to decrease inflammation or if possible increase what I would, would try to do as a a, a non-inflammatory protein diet as best as we can to see where we can get them to prevent basically edema, which is what is the biggest driver after surgery of discomfort and, you know, overall just getting rid of that feeling of, of, of having had surgery. Which is, again, this is what makes you so unique and why I was so excited to talk to you today, because as you've mentioned several times, and I say all the time, it's never just one thing, right? right. You know, the implants and the gut and the other toxic and the, again, who, who knows the what the tipping point is. And I love that example of, you know, which drivers can you handle quickly? Like you said, like maybe... In a different scenario, you wouldn't have done the surgery so quickly, but you knew getting that that driver out, getting the gut to, to be a little less inflamed was going to get her results quicker, which is amazing. Yeah, she's pretty, I mean, I've seen over, you know, I've done over 500 explants, but that means I've seen probably 800, 1,000 patients like this. They don't all come to me. They don't all, you sure. know, buy into what I'm sell, telling them and and I'm not everybody's cup of tea. I'll be very blunt with you about what I think. And, you know, if you want to keep your implants and still have those same symptoms, I've basically said, I won't revise you. I mean, it's not practical if you have those symptoms for me to go ahead and then put another device in you. So, you know, I stopped doing primary augmentations really quite a long time ago. And I never wanted to, to take care of, to be honest, I never wanted to put an implant in a young person outside of cancer patients who had to have them for the obvious reasons, because young people are ill-equipped to decision-make about this. It doesn't matter how well you explain it. That's why I it's tell not practical. Not to get married young. <laughs> you okay. just don't know what you don't know yet. <laughs> You're still right. forming, you know, emotionally. And that still, that still happens. The number one person I take care of is in their mid to late thirties who got these when they're in their twenties. Yep. And so they're, in between kids or done having kids or having symptoms based on their last child. or I mean, that is a very common problem. Then I have another group who are much, much older who are really experiencing health issues and they don't know what's going on. They have zero idea. And now it's like opposites, right? You have people taking care of young people because they're new moms. And then you have grandmothers who are having trouble functioning, basically. Right. Right. So uh, I'm going to just, th this is something I want to know. So I'm going <laughs> to throw it at you and, and I can't wait to hear your opinion on it. Cause I, I kind of am thinking about 
what you do as there's, you know, a growing field, at least it's bigger than what you're doing of, of biological dentistry, right? Like we all say we have symptoms. Oh, we have mercury fillings and we go and we have our regular dentist take them out. And now we've just increased our exposure and, you know, whole, whole nother story. And I'm, I'm kind of thinking of this the same way, because I'm thinking, gosh, there's gotta be, I can't even imagine how big the number is, but enough, a lot of women who, somehow connected the dots, right? Or they weren't well and they were with it enough to say like, hey, I wonder if these implants could have been a problem. And they just went and had explants done, but didn't necessarily get any bacterial things addressed, right? No no treatment of infection. What do you think or, or do you see them? I mean, do these women show up at your doorstep or are they just kind of lingering? Maybe they're a little better, but not really better. What What do you think about that? Like women listening that are like, wow, I had implants. I got them taken out, but I never did anything else. Now what? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a mixed bag. If they were in that category we described where they just had implant removal and no capsulectomy, then they're definitely going to experience symptoms of some variety. But depending on their level of their body body's capability to manage that oxidative stress load, they may never get symptomatic to the point where they want to be or have to be seen. And then there's definitely going to be that group that either have symptoms or so much oxidative stress or something else tips them that they're going to have symptoms and need to be seen and and taken care of because that pocket, if it wasn't really dealt with, then they have contamination. Now the level of contamination is, is obviously different in every individual. I just know that just like we clean surfaces with a, a solution like bleach, you know, that has a really low pH. The best antibiotic in the world is the one that's cytal, which means it kills versus the one that just statically controls the level. So I use things that are cital in the operating room. So when I leave the operating room, when one of my patients is done, everything that was in that pocket is sterile. Now they still have things running around their body that I can't account for. I don't put anybody on systemic antibiotics afterwards because usually, as you know, my patients have leaky gut already and giving them more antibiotics is not what they need you're going to get more problems with refractory BV and candidiasis, more gut problems. So I don't ever do that to women. That's just a stupid, just non-scientific approach to a problem. So I think if you're symptomatic and you had a capsulectomy, it'd be a case-by-case basis that I have to look at the reports and go through them to see if there's a way that we could manage them non-operatively, but just like the patient I told you about yesterday, I had to take them to the operating room because there wasn't, they didn't have another choice. And they're they're gonna be on a long road of recovery from so much oxidative stress for the past many, you know, over five years of having the surgery that then didn't really solve the issue. And I'm anxious to see her reports come back so I can, you know, I'm hopeful that it's very simple and I took care of it. There was contaminant there and it's gone now. If it was purely a stressor in the system, still a nidus of inflammation, then that's gone. But then it's harder for me. Now I got to work backwards and see if there's a, you know, glutathione metabolism deficit, if there's a methylation deficit, if there's a superoxide dismutase, you know, issue, something else that I can help her with so that she can get on with her life. 
Gotcha. But so for some, some people, there is perhaps a non-surgical approach if they've yeah. already had an explant. Yeah. I definitely would try to do that. I I wouldn't commit them to going back and, and going through uh, a procedure without reviewing the notes and making sure that symptomatically there weren't other ways to, you know, drive change. Gotcha. Wonderful. So where do you see, I I think what you're doing is, which is why we're (laughs) going to broadcast this. I think it's the best kept secret. I, I think it is. It's so beyond needed. I, I personally, because that that's just how I am, you know, would love to see you training other docs and like really getting this out there, but where is, what do you think are the future directions for, for this? I think what I would like to see is if, if we can get some mastery of behavior through genetic analysis and modification of diet by the client, and I can give some objective data about EEG through audio evoke response changes, both pre and post, I feel like we'll have made some real headway that then as evidence grows and it's real evidence, it's not anecdotal, it's not written on Google, it's not a Facebook post. I haven't published my series. I was president of the research foundation from 19 until uh, 20 in the midst of of COVID. And we were making progress and funding some research projects, but the scope, the scale that's needed is, is, it's not ready for prime time. You're not going to have those answers. I feel like we just have to keep pushing and establishing, you know, that cause and effect because the, the tipping point is the thing that neither of us can understand basically and each patient is going to be different i've i just want to eliminate and make a clear like pathway or a pathway to change in those symptoms where i know i can so that's why i got all excited about performing our own eegs on patients with brain fog because I feel like brain fog, when I first heard it as a term, I'm like, what the hell is brain fog? Define that. Yeah. And I said, you know, now I will tell you that that term was not taken well initially by clinicians because they didn't know what that meant. And I, I kept asking patients, like, what do you mean by brain fog? What specific problem are you having? So I can't remember things. And I'm like, well, we call that short-term memory loss. So basically for me to communicate with another colleague, I would say, I want you to pay attention to people having short-term memory loss. This is a potential issue. Brain fog to a plastic surgeon who doesn't know anything about this. They don't know what that means. I mean, that's just doesn't register with them. Like we're making huge assumptions that everybody's going to understand terms that they don't. So brain fog is something you don't understand unless you've experienced it. <laughs> and how is it different than just a, a short-term memory problem? You know, uh, right. And I didn't have any idea what people were talking about. Yeah. And so that still bothers me, but I face it all the time. And when it's superimposed on Lyme or mold, it is so mm-hmm. much worse. It is so much harder to deal with and understand from the client's perspective, like, what they're actually experiencing because they cannot express it. And then they're very hard to communicate with and feel like you are getting across any messages and it's sticking. 
Yeah. That's, they're, they're not processing well. Yeah. They can't, they can't process it all. That's why I want to do the EEG. And then, you know, I want to show change. And if there's not change, then we definitely have to look deeper and see, is this a mold problem? Is this a Lyme problem? Is it all the above? I mean, I don't want to send somebody out after doing a case and feeling like I did everything right. And they still can't, you know, process their information, remember their kids' names, you know, their spouse, or remember where they were the day before. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and like you said, that leads to more than one driver. And so sometimes it's not just the one. I mean, all of the all the things you just mentioned all can cause brain fog, right? So when you have all these layers of players that are, you know, creating one symptom, sometimes fixing one is not enough. That's the problem. Problem too. I, I, you know, full disclosure, people have argued this and they're like, this is the same as Lyme. This is the same as, as mold. Lyme more frequently because it just, the symptomology lines up so conveniently with Lyme that everybody's like, I mean, this just sounds like Lyme disease to me. They, they sound like they all have Lyme. I'm like, well, not every person I've taken care of over the last 500 has Lyme disease. Now, I don't have a Western blot or another PCR done on them to prove that, but I mean, I guess I can. I can start doing that. So no, and and no, it makes it makes perfect sense. And this is why you you go after what you can. And like you said, you you keep you're not just sending people out the door and you are looking for these improvements and these changes. And I, I just think what you are doing is so vastly needed and so important. What is one my question I ask everybody is, you know, what's one step? listeners can take today to start to improve their health. So you can, you feel that one, however you want, whether it's people with implants, people that doesn't matter, however you want to answer that. What's one thing people can do today to start to move their needle? I think if you have implants and, and you're falling into this kind of line of symptoms that we've discussed there's going to be an assessment tool online that we'll have shortly. And you can visit our website or uh, contact us and, and we'll get you connected with it. But it's really just, if you run through the symptoms like we just discussed and you're like 10 for 10, you probably should give me a call and I can help you if in fact you have implants. And now, if in fact you don't have implants and you have all the symptoms we discussed, then I would definitely be looking at Lyme, you know, Lyme exposures, toxic mold exposure. And I've seen like so much superimposement of that here in Texas. It's, it's startling how common it is. Yeah. And, and I would say from my practice as well, again, it's never just one thing. It's right. finding the thing that is going to, to tip the scales towards healing. And it definitely affects women. It's very startling how like I've gotten into just managing I feel like I have to micromanage everything now. So I do our own hormone assessments because so many perimenopausal and postmenopausal women have symptoms that you can not mistake, but align with implant illness. So in terms of recovery, for instance, if I have somebody who's peri or postmenopausal and the number one thing is fatigue and the other things aren't lining up as much, I'm like, okay, we're just going to tap the brakes. And we're going to do all your blood work, including your sex hormones and your thyroid function and your FSH, your IL-6 and your histamine. I'm just going to make sure that 
I've looked at all this stuff. Then we found a lady who was horribly anemic because she was having heavy, heavy menses, periods, because she was becoming menopausal. And that it's either or, right? You can have infrequent periods or they get worse and worse and worse and worse. So I had to go and send her to get injectifer or iron iron infusions because she would be unsafe to be operated on because of anemia. I would have I would have superimposed a new problem for her. You know, I don't lose a lot of blood, but just going through surgery is a stressful uh, sure. experience enough. So Recovery. I, I feel yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, and so the other thing is women need about, we'll say, one sixteenth of testosterone of a male. If they don't have it, their recoveries are so much more prolonged. They have edema for a longer period of time. They can't rebuild their re- retain muscle mass. I mean, all these things line up to create huge problems. In that group you just mentioned, you know, people think estrogen or, you know, but so many perimenopausal men and postmenopausal women are really low in testosterone if they have barely any. So yeah. it's, it's really important. And again, that goes back to the word holistic. It I is- found it's a huge driver. If you take care of their nutrition and balance their hormones, you've, you've not got half the battle one, but you're on your way to a much more positive recovery experience. And that we're just trying to take the variance out of the recovery. And so I know it seems probably like a lot when people are like, oh God, he wants to like check all my hormones and look at my blood work and do this supplement and that supplement. But there's a reason, you know, I, I do that. People come back afterwards and they're like, when do I stop taking these supplements and stop doing the hormone therapy? And I asked them like, are you feeling good or better than you felt in a long time? Yeah. And I was like, well, I would probably just continue taking those things because this is how you should feel. You should have an energy level where you can function at work and you're with your family and you can be communicative. You're not losing your hair. You have a libido. You're, you're not puffy and swollen. So your diet's right. I mean, those are all things that should be beneficial. Absolutely. Absolutely. So to circle back to the one thing, because as I, we know there's so many more than one, but what, what is, Something, you know, someone can do, obviously we, we've got the, the, you know, you've identified the people that would greatly benefit from reaching out. You said you're going to have an assessment soon up on your website. Yeah. So we're going to have a, an assessment tool is going to be on basically explant website that we're going to start. And it's going to be, it's going to have videos about what I feel is important to look at in terms of basically many things we've discussed, but just going through the symptoms, like we've talked about the top 10 things and what I see that are missed by both allopathic and functional medicine practitioners that relate to breast implant illness or superimposed mold or uh, Lyme disease. Awesome. I love it. So for those that are listening on audio, before we wrap up, where can listeners find, where's the best place to find you? We'll have the links in the notes, but somebody's just listening and they're like, wow, this guy is amazing. Where should they go? Well, it's a little complicated because I have a long last name, but go to drrobertwhitfield.com. And we have a little chat function. If you want to start a chat with my team, it's actually not a bot. It's my, my team and you'll get to communicate with them and help you. I'm happy to reach out to folks. We do virtual consultations, so you don't have to leave your comfortable East Coast or West Coast home to visit me. I'll come to you. And then you can follow me on Instagram. We do a lot of posts and then Facebook and TikTok. And I have a podcast, Holistic and Scientific. 
I love it. Thank you so much, Dr. Rob. You have shared such a, a big old pile of gold with us today. Appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. For everyone listening, remember you can get the show notes and transcripts by visiting inspiredliving.show. I hope you had a great time and enjoyed this episode as much as I did. I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to Julie Michelson's Inspired Living with Autoimmunity. Did you enjoy this episode? Please like, share, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to get a transcript of this and every other episode, just head on over to inspiredliving.show or click on the link in this episode's description. There, you can also find everything we discussed in this episode, including links and information about our guest. You can even send in your questions to be answered by Julie in a future episode. That's inspiredliving.show. Until next time, this is Julie Michelson's Inspired Living with Autoimmunity podcast, helping you take your power back.